you know, one of the most beautiful and moving things for me throughout my Christian life have been moments where I, I just sit and listen to the saints singing, How Great Thou Art, or numerous other hymns or songs, and I, I certainly would advocate singing, but there are moments in our lives and our walk of the Lord where it's incredibly beneficial and encouraging to just hear God's people sing of what a great and awesome God He is. I, I am so thankful that you're here this morning. I'm thankful for just the encouragement that you brought me in singing out and rejoicing in the Lord this morning. You guys that are married know that when, you, when two lives come together, you know, you're living and you think you know a lot about the other and uh, everything's going well and you've got, you know, Steph can do no wrong and she, I'm not going to go as far as to say she thought I could do no wrong, but you have that kind of illusion you know, and you get married and you quickly realize that you're coming from two different contexts, right? And so some of you in here, did anybody have the toothpaste issue come up? Has anybody argued over toothpaste, where you squeeze the toothpaste and the dreaded toilet seat conversation? Did anybody have that conversation at home, maybe? You guys are looking at me like this is not real. Seriously? I mean, I, honestly, those weren't a big deal in our house. We still... It depends on what day you come into our, rest, our bathroom as far as the toothpaste. It may be from the top, the middle, neither one of us care. And I grew up with sisters, and so the toilet seat was never an issue. Um, but a couple of things that were an issue is I opened the pantry one day, and there were no Cheez-Its. That was problematic. And so it's like, we, we can't have a pantry without Cheez-Its. And so we, you can ask our kids. They're probably, I can count on, on two hands, maybe, uh, maybe, ten, maybe on one hand the number of times that our pantry does not have Cheez-Its in the last 19 years. The other thing that was an issue was the first meal that Steph fixed me. We were in Texas, and um, granted, we were, we were poor. We were very poor living in, um, in seminary, and, and we didn't have a lot. But uh, she fixed the meal, and I sat down to eat and was kind of looking at the plate, and um, there was no meat. And, and I went, where's the meat? And she said, well, this is just vegetables. We're having vegetables tonight. And I went... I, I can't eat a plate with no meat. I, you know, there, there has to be something dead on it or I'm not happy. Um, and so meat is something important. So now we, I have meat every time we eat. Um, I, one of the biggest changes for me when we got married was that I grew up in Atlanta and we didn't have a football team to cheer for down there. Uh, but I learned very quickly when I got married that I was now a Packers fan and I didn't really have a choice. I was a cheesehead, the most, honestly, some of those hideous color combinations and around this nasty golden green, but I've grown to love it. And now I'm a diehard Packer fan, and I never had an option about that. I was just a Packer fan. But that's presented some pretty interesting situations for us. One of, this, one of these situations is something they call Packer Family Night. Uh, Mickey and JC may know about Packer Family Night, but... What this is, is a glorified scrimmage, and all they do is they open up practice to all the Packers fans, and the Packers fans are crazy, kind of like Kentucky fans are, and they actually pack out the stadium. So there's 67,000, 68,000 people that come and fill Packers Stadium. They pay to come see these guys practice. I mean, like the linemen are kicking field goals and stuff like that, just for fun, and everybody pays to see that. Well, at the end, one of the really neat things, what we really enjoy is that those who are a part of the Packers family and have connections get to go down on the field. And so at the very end of the night, we go down on the field, on Lambeau Field, which is a really, really cool thing. We get to go down there and we sit down on, on the field with all the players and, 
and personnel. And we watched this incredible fireworks display that goes around the ring of the stadium. It's just amazing, amazing. The, the thing that strikes me about that, and the reason I tell you that is this, is that when the, when the scrimmage is over, what happens is there's kind of like a 15-minute down period before the fireworks start. And in that 15 minutes, my brother-in-law, who works for the Packers, kind of comes up and he'll make his way to the gate to go down on the field. And our entire family, like not just my family here, but our entire side of the family that's there will stand up and we just walk down and he'll be standing at the gate and there's a security guard there and he'll look over at Brian and Brian will say, there with me. And we just walk right down on the field. I don't, I don't walk on the field because I'm Todd Meadows. I've never come to that security guard and went, you know, shown my ID, and they went, okay, you come on on. They would say, great, um, see you later, right? Instead, we have the privilege to go down on the field and to watch that and to my, the kids play football on Lambeau Field for a little while. We have the opportunity and the privilege to do that because of the relationship that we have with our brother-in-law. He enters us, gets us on, gives us access to the field. We enter onto the field through him and the relationship we have with him. We're going to talk about that today. In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about the benefits that we have in Christ through justification by faith in Christ alone. And so when he talks about the benefits, it's very much similar to the benefits I have in my relationship with my brother-in-law, except when we consider the benefits we have with our relationship with Christ, it is much, much greater. Paul makes a very significant shift in what we're studying today. Actually, he he makes it a few verses earlier in chapter 4. So if you think about uh, chapters 1, 18 through 4, I think it's uh, verse 4, verse 15, you don't hear any first-person pronouns. You don't hear any we's or us. You don't hear that. You hear you and the Gentiles and the Jews, those, the ones. Those are the words you hear. And Paul is laying out the gospel very clearly to all people, saying that all people are justified by faith alone. It's not by works. We've covered that. You've heard that. You know that. And now when he gets into uh, chapter 4, verse 16, at the end of verse 16, he says, us. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, talking about Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He continues to talk about Abraham and that he, he believed in God and because of his belief it was credited to him as righteousness until he gets down to verse 22. He says that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. And here's the dramatic shift where Paul goes all in. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and for our justification. Therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This gospel message, this declaration by Paul, is not some distant philosophy. It's not something that we just hold off and we look at or we examine and we read about it. 
It's not the tale of, of, of mythological Greek gods who, who come and interact with humans. And it's, it's no mythology. The, the gospel is the story of God restoring his people, reconciling his people, bringing his people back into relationship with him. And it's a story that you and I are included in. It's a story that involves us, that we are a part of. So we have been justified by faith. So Paul here makes it intensely personal, intensely personal. And we see that shift as he gets into chapter 5, where we're at today, 5 verses, verse 2, that justification by faith is something that is ours, that has occurred in our life through Christ to all who have believed. Okay? Let's read that again. If you, if you hadn't turned in your Bible, we're in Romans 5, verse 1 through 2. Bill covered one last week. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, Through him, Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the first thing I want to point out to you here is, is look at what's common it's been common all the way in the first four chapters, but it's very clear here in, the, in verse 1 and verse 2. He makes a statement. Where, what is this peace of God that we have, this peace with God, our justification by faith? What does he say? What is the means by which we gain that? It's through what? Or through who? Through Christ, right? Through him, right? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to God through Christ. The reality is this, is, is there's a lot of people being spiritual is not out of style in our culture. It's not out of style. People are okay with being spiritual. People are okay with, with religion in a general field, right? They, they're okay with you saying, hey, I'm praying. We're, well, we just pray for the people who are, who are suffering in Hawaii. We, we pray for the people of Guatemala. No, I've never heard somebody say that on TV and people be outraged about that. Have you? <gasps> Why would you do that? No. People say that all the time. Even people who would not profess Christ say, hey, our prayers are with you. I don't know what they mean by that. I don't know who they're praying to, but they're okay with it. The, the reality is we live in a time and a culture where people are okay with spirituality. They're okay and they even attempt to approach God. They're, they're okay with wanting to talk about God or even approach God, but they're not okay with doing that through Christ. Through Christ. And the, the reality is that the only way that we can approach God, the only way that we can truly come before Him, that we can draw near to Him, the writer of Hebrews said, is through Christ. Through Christ. So verse 1, he says that it's, we have justification by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, we're looking at today, through Him we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. It's the same. It's through my brother-in-law, that we can attain access to Lambeau Field. I can't get on Lambeau Field in any other way, not in, without getting hauled to prison, right? But through him, I can. I cannot approach the throne of grace outside of going through Christ. We need to see that today. If you're here and you're trying to pray to God, you're trying to access God, and you're okay with spirituality, you think you're a religious person and things are okay, but you are not living in Christ, that you have not trusted in Christ, then your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. 
you've bought into a lie. You've, been, you, you've bought into a sham. It's only by Christ that we're saved. So in verse 2, there's two statements that Paul makes that we need to look at today. And what we're going to do is, is I want to go through and we just want to look at these statements and look at what are the truths that Paul teaches us in these statements. And then after we look at the truths, I'm going to leave you with some, some takeaways or implications as a result that should inform our lives. Because the, the doctrine, the belief, the truths of this verse should inform the way we live, right? We understand that doctrine should drive our spirituality. What we believe, okay, and on an intellectual level, should drive us to live for God, to glorify Him with our lives. So here's the first statement that Paul makes. He says, through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now the imagery here is of one who comes into the king's courtroom. And he, he comes in not as a, a temporary visitor that, that comes in and just walks up and can see the, the king or the queen. Right? You guys have, have seen uh, The Greatest Showman. If you've seen the movie The Greatest Showman and, um, and Barnum takes his group into see the queen and they walk in and they see the queen and they talk to him and then what do they do? They leave. They're gone. Right? But there are other people in there that were permanent fixtures. Right? You saw the other people standing in the showroom all around the queen. Right? But that's, that's what's going on here. That's the imagery that we have been granted access into the, the room of the king, that we come, and we're not a visitor. We're not one that just comes and then leaves. We're not one that comes and is kicked out. We're not one that comes unwelcomed. We're one that has been granted access. We've been granted introduction into the presence of the king. And we stand there. We stand there. We reside there. We are a permanent fixture in the room of the king. That's a, that a beautiful beautiful image there of the reality of who we are in Christ. So the first thing, here's a, a few things that we would need to take, some truths from this first statement from Paul in the first part of chapter, or verse 2. First is this, is that justification by faith is a past reality with present consequences, with present results. So back in verse 1, he said, we have been justified by faith. And now in verse 2, he says, we have obtained access by faith okay this is a, a past action with a settled result this isn't something that we're hoping that if we come to church enough that we're going to be justified it's not something that we if we we say listen I, I hope that I read my bible enough and if I if I read it at least five times a week and I only miss the weekends then then maybe God will say I'm righteous no this justification by faith God declares us righteous through Christ through Christ so it is something that has happened you're not continually being justified it's not like this work this ongoing work of justification that's sanctification where you grow in holiness now justification is something that happens in time when God redeems you when you are saved you have been justified by faith you have obtained entrance into the throne room of God into the presence of God so the first truth justification by faith is a past reality with present consequences Here's a second thing we learn from that verse. Is that our secure standing as being justified before God is an act of God's grace toward us. So it is God acting graciously towards us to give us this secure standing before him. Okay, So if you look there, Paul says 
that we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay? So when he says this grace, he, there is a specific grace that he has in mind. There, he is singling out, he's saying this grace. He, he is referencing something. What, what might that be? Well, that might be, what might that be? Look at verse 1. Think about it. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. This, this grace that Paul's referring to is the fact that we've been justified by faith and we now have access to God, that we have peace with God. We are no longer at enmity with him. We have changed our context, okay? That, that grace is not in question. It's not that we are at risk of losing it. It is secure. So we have access and we are invited to boldly come before the king. We have been granted that. It is a gracious act of God on your behalf, on my behalf, as a believer. The third thing we learn here is that the grace of God not only saves us, but it also sustains us in daily life. The grace of God not only saves us, it sustains us. Think think about amazing grace that we just sang. We we sing about the grace that, that sought us, right? That we once were lost, but now we once were blind, now we see. And so a lot of that hymn is what talking about the grace that saves. It's an amazing grace. But what about the verse that says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. See, God's grace guides us and works in our life. It sustains us. It's how God is graciously working in our lives. It's his posture towards us. So, so where we stand has changed. Where we reside has changed if you're a Christian. This isn't true for everyone sitting in here. What we're talking about is not true for every one of you. Some of you sitting here today are not Christians. And so it's not true. I can't truthfully look at you and say, you live in a state of grace, a state of being justified. You don't. Scripture says that, that outside of Christ we are children of wrath, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That we're daily building up wrath from God. That we, we just keep on day after day going, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm gaining more wrath, more wrath. I'm building up more wrath, more of God's wrath. And his wrath will be poured out at some point in time. It's only through Christ that you're justified. And only through Christ that you obtain access into this grace in which we now stand. So believers, you stand through Christ in a state of grace. Your context has changed from being a child of wrath to being a child of the king. Do you realize that, believer? Do you, do you realize that you are in a position of being a constant recipient of God's grace? That, that is just the trajectory of your life as you go through all the twists and turns of life. God is graciously working in your life. We need to know that as believers. We stand, we live in God's grace. Here's a second statement that Paul makes. So that was the first statement. And then he goes on, he says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the first thing we learn from this statement. Is that God-centered boasting is the song of the believer's heart. God-centered boasting is the song of the believer's heart. 
Last night, we, I had, had full intentions of getting the little guys there in bed at like 8.30, you know. Uh, it's very difficult, I found, when, when Steph's in Canada uh, to do that. And so I think it was like 9.45 or 10 o'clock, I'm tucking them in. And, and uh, one of them, I don't remember which one, of Avery or Kendall, one said, uh, I don't know about singing in the morning, I'm really tired. And I, I said, I know, honey, I, that's Dad's fault. We've got to get you in bed earlier on, on Saturday so that you come and you can sing. Because we want to sing loud and proud, right? Loud and proud. Is there anything wrong with that? Should we, as believers, come in here and sing loud and proud? Yeah. Yeah, we should. We should sing loud and proud. Look at what Paul says. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the deal. The word we rejoice in the Greek is most commonly translated as boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. So in Scripture, boasting in our own works, boasting in our own abilities, is condemned. We're not to go around and say, hey, man, I am, I'm the greatest at this. So look how good I do that. Look how wonderful I am. Look how gracious I am. No, that's condemned. That's sinful. That's pride. That is sinful boasting. But Scripture does affirm and encourage us to rejoice, to exalt your Scripture, may, your, your translation may say, to exalt in the hope of the glory of God, to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, to boast in the hope of the glory of God. Godly boasting is, is boasting which would elevate God in His glory. They would say God is a magnificent God. He is a wonderful God. And we have that glory of God phrase. It means the weightiness. We, we know that God is a weighty being. He is greater than all. That he is the supreme being. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That there is no other king like him. There is no other one that's more important, that's greater than him. So he is known as the king of glory. What does that mean? That means he is the greatest. He's the king of all kings. We also see the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament where it's this bright, blinding manifestation of God in his presence. So much so that Moses spends time in the presence of God and he comes down and he's glowing. The people can't look at him. Or the time where, God, where, where Moses says, let me just catch a glimpse of you. Just a glimpse. And, and God says, no, if you see me in my glory, you will die. It's not going to happen. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and you can just get a glimpse of me as I pass by. Because otherwise you're dead. It is the glory of the Lord. That he is glorious and, and wonderful and great and splendor and magnificent. And so in that, we rejoice. In that, we boast. So yeah, we do want to come in and sing loud and proud. To God be the glory. We sing loud and proud. I, I would contend today that some of us didn't boast in the Lord this morning. Some of us, to God be the glory. You know, it's like, man, let's, let's be loud and proud about that. Let's declare that. I love sometimes, that you guys don't get to hear this, but sometimes in practice, uh, Jeff will say, hey, turn the organ up so loud that it rattles the roof. Because why? Because we want to be loud and proud. We want to declare. Instruments can declare things, and the organ may be better than anything, declares the magnificence and the glory of God. We want to be loud and proud of our God because God is worthy of us being loud and proud of. He is a great and a mighty God, and so we boast in him. That's the song of the believer's heart, is boasting in Christ. So we learn that first. Here's the second thing we learn from this verse, is that we rejoice. Why? Why do we boast? Why do we rejoice? Because our hope is secure. Our hope is secure. Hope 
in Scripture refers to certainty and confidence. It's not just kind of, oh, I, I, wringing my hands and I hope this will happen. You know, we've told you that before from the pulpit. You've heard that before. We need to be reminded of it. That, that hope in, in Scripture is not the prospect of something that might happen, but it's the certainty of what God has already promised. It's the certainty of what God says will happen. It's that blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, right? It's the assurance and the confidence that what God has said he will do, he will do. He is a God that what? What do we hear in the call to worship? He is a God that does as he pleases. He does whatever he wants. And we hope in him because we are confident in him. It's the, the hope, the, the certainty, Romans 8.30, right? That those whom God has foreknown, he has predestined. Those, and he, those whom he's predestined, he has also called. And those whom he has called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We have a sure and a certain hope. He speaks of glorification as though it was a present reality, doesn't he? He says, listen, you were foreknown, you were predestined, you were called, you were justified, you were glorified. Wait, what? Paul understands that, he, that what God does and what God says he's going to do is certain. Why? Because he has the hope of Philippians 1.6. You've studied this in adult Sunday school. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He has the ability and he is faithful and he has the plan to do that. He is a God that does as he pleases and he will carry out his plan. And so our hope is secure. We have confidence in the Lord. It's the same thing that Peter wrote in, in uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. He says that, that we have been saved. We, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. What is that hope in? Is it, is it hope in today? No. It's a living hope in what? In our inheritance from the Lord. Eternal life that he describes as being undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. It's a living hope that is certain and confident because what God has given us, no one can take away. That's the living hope we have. We are saved to a hope that is sure and is settled in God. The third thing we learn is that our hope rests in the glory of God to be restored on the final day. When Paul uses this term here, when he says the glory of God, he's, he's forward-looking. Now, Wednesday night at our uh, VBS site, we, every night we had a time where the kids were doing their lessons and all this stuff going on, and we, there was like four or five, six of us men just sitting around, and, and we talked about all kinds of random things. And so on Wednesday night, we sat down and we talked about this verse. So let, let's just talk about this verse. We're going to look at Sunday morning. And, and one, one of the men said, I love the way you see Paul in, in verse 1 and 2 look at the past, the present, and the future. Right, that, that God has justified us past and we have present consequences that we experience, that we have peace with God and that we stand in the grace of God. And then this future hope, this future reality that we hope in the glory of God. That's an eschatological reference. It's an end times reference is what that is. That's your big theological word for the day. It's eschatology, end times. He, he is looking to the end and the final day that we will be glorified with God. So that the glory of Adam that was lost at the fall will be fully recovered by the grace of God. Right? Adam in, in all his glory as God's perfect creation, when he fell, when they went in and sin entered the world, that glory was marred. But in the end, when sin is removed and, and it is it is eradicated from all those who have believed, 
we will be restored to that glory. Listen to this. this is, man, this quote just shook me when I read this this week. Tom Schreiner from Southern Seminary writes this. He says, those who scorned God's glory, Romans 1, 21 and 23, and have fallen short of it, we read in 3.23, are now promised a future share in it. Isn't that beautiful? That, that we who have scorned God's glory, that we rejected the glory of God for the glory of man, the glory of idols, we scorned it. We don't want that, God. I want my own stuff. I want to worship myself. I want what I want, and I want it now. I'm Mr. Vain. There's your 90s pop reference. We have all fallen short of that. We live in complete vanity and sinfulness. But now, through Christ, we are given share in the glory of God. That is hope-giving, hope-filling confidence in God that there will be a day that we are restored to be who we are intended to be so let me give you some implications some takeaways this morning some ways that that these truths should affect our lives here's the first way through the ebbs and flows of life our standing before God never changes so through the ebbs and flows of life, our standing before God never changes. It's, uh, it's called the security of the believer. Th- things may change. Your faith may falter. But your standing in the grace of God will not falter. Why? Why? That's right. God doesn't change. And guess what? It's not based on your faith. It's based on His grace. Your standing before God is the grace of God in your life. Now, you responded in faith to that. But it is contingent on God's grace, on God's power, on God's ability. Right? We may lose some battles. We may lose some battles with sin. We may make poor choices. We may slip and rebel. But guess what? Christ has won the war. Christ has won. And so our standing, even though through the ups and the downs of your faith, will not falter. You stand in the grace of God, Christian. You stand in God's grace. Know that. Know that. Here's a second takeaway. Standing in grace means that we never have to cower in fear or dread when we do fall into sin. There are times where we sin. Right? We still battle the sinful nature. We still wrestle with it. Right? But when that happens, we do not stand in a position where we need to be afraid of the response of God. Why? Because we stand in grace. We stand in grace. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's posture towards us is one of grace. So if you're a believer and you fall into sin, you don't have to be worried. You come before God. Why? Because you know that you stand in grace. That God's outreaching, His pouring out upon you is grace. So bring your sins to Him. Bring your faults. Bring your insecurities. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. Bring it. 
Because God is graciously working in your life. Third takeaway. Standing in grace gives us freedom to live boldly without fear of failure. Standing in grace gives us freedom to live boldly without fear of failure. you're, You're not on the team, so to speak, where you're worried that if you make a mistake, you commit a turnover, you're going to get kicked off the team. You're, you're on the team where, where the coach says, go and play with abandon, play the way I teach you to play and I show you to play and follow the plan. But in the course of that, I know you're going to make mistakes and we're going to learn from them and we're going to keep on. You go, 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 go hard. You live in the grace of God. And so that means we can live with boldness for him. So Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's writing about his confidence to minister in the grace of God. Listen to what he says. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We can live in boldness, people. We can live and step out. We don't have to be worried and consumed about this, this kind of shackle with this fear of what if I say the wrong thing? What if, I don't, what if I miss out on part of it? You realize that when I teach the multiply evangelism class back there and I was sitting the other day on the porch, and me and Braden were just going through the gospel and reviewing it to help him get ready for Canada. And, and one of my encouragements to you guys that have been in that class and to him the other day is, is don't be so worried about leaving a word out or leaving a circle from the three circles out that, that you don't just share the gospel. Just share it. You know it. Just share it. Trust the Holy Spirit. Do we want to be careful of what we say? Yeah. I don't want to be out there proclaiming false doctrine or heresy and then going, well, I'll just trust the Lord with that. We want to be careful about it. But at the same time, it's, it's not this thing where we're constantly in fear going, oh, if I better not really say anything that I may mess up. You know, there have been times where I have just messed up. And in those moments, God, God works. You know, typically, just being really transparent with you, some of the most encouraging responses I've ever got from sermons are ones where I walked down from here and went, good grief, that was a train wreck. <laughs> You know, as a preacher, there's mornings you come down, you go, man, that was, that was all right. It's a good sermon. And then, you know, it's like, eh. <laughs> good job, pastor. And there's times where you go down and go, man, I, I missed this point. I missed that. It's just terrible. You know, I don't know. It just didn't feel right. didn't feel good. And then people, like, call you that week. Hey, God just really used that. And you're going, okay. Thank you, God. We, we need to just live in boldness and without fear of failure. Failure falls into his grace and triumph is by his grace. That's what we need to know. And with that, we just live for his glory. Here's the next takeaway. Is that we never encounter a moment in which forever is not important. We never encounter a moment in which forever is not important. Paul constantly lives in this already not yet area. That we have already been justified, but there is actually more to come. There is the hope of God's glory. There is the hope of the ultimate victory in Christ. Paul lives in that. And we never encounter a moment where we go, wow, I, I don't need to consider the future, right? Life in this life is just a glim- glimmer of life to come. Right now we see with veiled faces, one day we will see clearly. The future is always relevant and we need to know it and live in it. Fifth, we need a hope in the glory, or the hope in the glory of God reminds us that the frailty of our will, the weakness of our body, and the flesh that struggles against sin will one day be glorified. So you in here that are just discouraged by sin, one day 
if you're one of Christ, if you're a believer, if you've been justified by faith through Christ, one day that will be no more. So that frustrating sin where you cry out like Paul does in Romans 7, man, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and I just am so frustrated, wretched man that I am. Oh, (laughs) we boast in the hope, the glory of God, that one day that's gone. You who are discouraged because your body's deteriorating, you can't do what you used to could do, oh, that will be no more. That will be no more. Because you will be saved to glory the way God designed you. We hope in tomorrow. The last takeaway is one that has been littered throughout our worship today. And I don't know if you saw it. I don't know if you picked up on it. It's littered throughout our worship almost every week. Is that the Christian can rejoice for we have no reason to despair. It doesn't say we have no reason to mourn. It doesn't, I didn't say we have no reason to, to be sorrowful. But we have no reason to despair. We can hope in the midst of life difficulties. We can hope because our hope is in the Lord. Here, here's a phrase that should never be spoken of by us as believers. It's all over. Because guess what? It's not. No matter what tomorrow holds, no matter what today holds, it's not all over for the believer. Because our hope is in the glory of God, who holds eternity in our hands, or in, his, in his hands. An eternity that is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. That's where our hope lies. And so we can always be forward-looking. We rest in Christ's victory and cleansing from sin. We rejoice in his victory over death. But listen, we have to boast all the more in the hope that we have in Christ for eternal life. We have to boast in that. Where do you see that? You see it in the hymns, in the expression of hymns. That's the, the beautiful thing we see in hymns is that hymn writers typically come around. And what is that last stanza? It's a stanza that directs us to the future. It directs us to our hope that we have in the glory of God. So it is well. Life's tragedy ends with him saying, And the Lord hastes the day when faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so it's well with my soul. The writer of There is a Fountain. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. Rock of ages, while I draw, while I draw this fleeting breath, When mine eyes shall close in death. When I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a day that's going to be. We sing hallelujah, what a Savior here as we're racked with sin and we struggle with sin and we've got it in our in our. In our background all around us and that day it's going to be a new song and we're going to sing hallelujah what a savior with new fervor with new loud and proud boasting in that day to god be the glory great things he has taught us great things he has done are and great our rejoicing through jesus the son but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder our transport when jesus we see the lord is my salvation and when i reach My final day, he will not leave me 
in the grave. But I will rise. He will call me home. The Lord is my salvation. That's our hope. That's where our hope lies. That's our confidence. That's why we're secure. Is because in the midst of life's trials, in the midst of life's difficulties, we're never, ever without hope. We're never without the knowledge that our God reigns and He does whatever He pleases. The worship team's gonna come up. As they do, we're throwing you a curveball. There's two songs at the end this week. Because we want you to respond loudly and proudly in the glory of God today. And so we want to invite you to come. The first song is a song of commitment. And if you'd like to explore what it means to, to be a Christian, if you want to talk to someone about being a Christian, please come. If you are interested in joining or what it means to, what it looks like to join grace, then, then please come. And then after that, I'm going to step back and we're going to rejoice and we're going to sing out to our great and awesome God. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing. God, we give you glory this morning. God, we rejoice and we come and we stand beneath the cross as your people standing in your grace, securely resting in your grace and goodness, Lord Jesus. And so we rejoice and we worship you today. God, I pray for those in here, friends and family who do not know you, who have not trusted you. God, I pray that you would work in their lives, that you would call them to trust you. And God, they would respond in faith today. God, be honored. Fill us with the hope of the glory of you. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.